0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, how much longer can Russia sustain its war in Ukraine? With the Russian military taking huge casualties, we do a status check on Russia's military readiness. Then the US, China, and Russia all have interests in the Arctic, but how will the war in Ukraine impact those relationships? and drones are flying into trouble. What the federal government can do to curb illegal drone activity and keep planes and citizens safe. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington DC and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Russia is suffering very high casualties. And since the invasion at the end of February, they may have lost about a quarter of their initial fighting force. And they're struggling to provide adequately trained replacements. Mark Kansian is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mark, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Before we talk about uh, Russian troop levels, I want to ask you about the horrific images that we're seeing come out of Bukha. What does that indicate to you about the discipline of the Russian military?
0: Well, the images, of course, are very disturbing, and um, the incidents seem to be quite widespread. They're talking about uh, hundreds of uh, bodies. The Ukrainians are investigating, which I think is absolutely necessary. It does seem to indicate some uh, breakdown in discipline. Some of the cases certainly look like uh, war crimes. I think we'll know more once the Ukrainians have it a chance to uh, investigate thoroughly. Uh, But there have been a lot of issues about uh, Russian troop uh, discipline and uh, morale, discussions uh, or reports about troops refusing to fight, uh, troops killing their uh, officers, uh, sabotaging uh, equipment. Uh, So uh, there's, uh, I think, some questions about uh, the state of the Russian military.
1: Well, put the Russian troop losses in perspective for us. How significant is it? You know, we're, we're looking at numbers like, you know, 10,000, 14,000. I mean, a lot of, uh, uh, it's pretty significant.
0: Well, the losses are very significant. <clears throat> we have to keep in mind that the Russian army today is not the Red Army of World War II that uh, marched to victory over the bodies of its dead. It's a much smaller military, the total military is about 900,000. And to put that in perspective, the U.S. military is about 1.3 million. Uh, it looks like they've taken somewhere between 7,000 and 15,000 killed, figuring that there may be twice as many uh, wounded. That would be about 40,000 casualties. And their initial combat force was probably about 150,000. The whole combat force was maybe 200,000, but a lot of that was uh, militias and support troops. So they've have possibly lost uh, a quarter of their forces, and replacing those is going to be very difficult. The Russians don't have a a good reserve system, uh, so they, uh, unlike the United States, so plugging those holes is going to be uh, difficult. Also to put it in perspective, uh, if they've lost 15,000, that was about how many uh, troops they lost in 10 years of combat in Afghanistan. So they may have lost as many troops in four weeks as they lost in 10 years in Afghanistan.
1: And I mean, how large is Russia's armed forces, uh, you know, as far as numbers? And and how does that compare to the size of the U.S. armed forces?
0: Well, it's important, again, to keep in mind that this is not the uh, Russian military of uh, the Cold War or the Soviet military. That military was about three million uh, active duty personnel. Uh, This military is about 900,000 total uh, uh, with a a small reserve force. They they have a lot of people on the books, but it's not a reserve force that uh, trains or is very ready. By comparison, the United States has about 1.3 million on active duty and another 800,000 in pretty high readiness uh, reserve units. So the United States is much larger. um, And the Russian military looks this way because of reforms that they instituted uh, in 2008. In 2008, they invaded the country of Georgia uh, they won, but they won ugly. Uh, they went through a series of reforms after that. The military got smaller, brought in a lot more volunteers, the training got better, the equipment got better, um, and they built a military that, at least on the surface, looked a lot more like us.
1: So there have been intelligence reports that Putin might not be getting the truth about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, but y- you know, you can't hide dead soldiers, so how could he not know Russian casualty numbers?
0: There's been a lot of speculation that uh, Putin is not getting good information about how the war is going, and that's not surprising in authoritarian regimes. No one wants to bring bad news to the person at the top because of the uh, retaliation that might uh, result. And Putin has clamped down on independent reporting, so this, it's not that you know, there's an independent press or reports coming in from the outside. Um, and just looking at the visuals, when Putin has a, <clears throat> a meeting, he's at the end of this long table with everyone on the other end, and that just reinforces the notion that maybe he's not uh, in close contact. Um, on the other hand, uh, he has fired some um, uh, senior officials, which indicates that you know, some recognition that things aren't going well. They've changed their uh, strategy. So you know, there must be some um, notion about the war isn't going terribly well. And to be fair to the Russians, it's very hard in the middle of a war to get good information up to the top The United States of course was criticized for that during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars that you know what troops are seeing on the ground was not getting to senior military and uh, civilian leaders on the question about whether they can conceal their casualties and certainly they've worked to do that they've underreported their casualties or are reports that you know that uh, 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 troops are being uh, cremated and you know not being uh, uh, losses not being announced but at some point, the, the scale will uh, get through to the uh, Russian people.
1: Where's the tipping point here, Mark? I mean, how many Russian soldiers have to be killed before Putin says, we need to be serious about a diplomatic solution?
0: I think the tipping point is going to be with the generals. The uh, Russians, I, I think, are uh, running against time. Their casualties are high. They're trying to replace those, but the replacements won't have the skill um, or the cohesion of the uh, original forces. They're drawing down their stocks, unlike the Ukrainians who are getting constantly resupplied uh, from the West. Uh, morale seems to be uh, difficult, and of course, on the home front, uh, dissent is increasing. I think at some point, the generals are gonna get together among themselves and go to Putin and say, uh, if you don't negotiate a, uh, some sort of ceasefire, the army is going to break. There's a history of that in Russia, and bad things happen to Russia uh, the uh, governing uh, groups when the army breaks.
1: Uh, Lastly, Mark, I mean, what do we know about Russian support for the war in light of these losses?
0: There's clearly a lot of opposition to the war in the Russian population. Putin has tried to clamp down, uh, but some information gets through. It's not possible to fully um, uh, stop the flow of information. And I think that over time, that uh, opposition is going to increase. When we see what happened in Afghanistan, there were mothers groups, for example, that got together uh, and put information out as mothers tried to find out what had happened to their uh, children. You see that happening now. So I think that opposition is just gonna continue to increase.
1: All right, Mark, thanks very much for talking to us. Nice to have you.
0: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Coming next, the Arctic is at the forefront of China and Russia's economic strategies, but could it divide their alliance? You're watching WJLA 24 seven news. Yet another casualty of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the collaboration among Arctic states, which includes Russia. But since China has interests in the Arctic, this does present an opportunity to distance China from Russia. Jeremy Greenwood is a federal executive fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's also a commander for the U.S. Coast Guard. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Uh, Good
2: morning, Mimi. Thank you for having me.
1: So what's the Arctic Council and what's the significance of it suspending its operations in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine?
2: Well, the Arctic Council was really the premier intergovernmental organization designed for pan Arctic diplomacy and governance. Uh, It was Arctic governance for the Arctic, by the Arctic and included indigenous communities and all eight Arctic states. Uh, It really was a truly cooperative organization that was consensus based. So with Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, that obviously presents a massive problem, particularly because Russia currently holds the chairmanship until May of 2023 of the council. And that made it absolutely unsustainable to continue their operations. Uh, The chairman sets the agenda for the organization and sets the tone for the work. And uh, there's no way we could sit in collaboration during this current ongoing war.
1: So what is China's interest in the Arctic? Because uh, they don't actually border the Arctic, so they're not considered an Arctic state. And they also have something called the Polar Silk Road.
2: Absolutely. Well, they're absolutely not an Arctic state. That is, uh, that is correct. My, what my co-author and I, Xu Lao, tried to do was analyze uh, some of China's interests in the Arctic, which I think are well-known. Uh, primarily, it's economic. Uh, they're looking at hydrocarbons, technology, uh, future shipping routes in the Arctic. Uh, a lot of that depends on Russia, which has the longest coastline in the Arctic. Um, of course, China also has scientific uh, and environmental reasons for being in the Arctic. Uh, we know that the Arctic is warming at two to three times the rate of the rest of the planet, and that impacts China, just like it impacts all of us. And so they do have some legitimate interest in the Arctic. We also have to be careful because they also have you know, dual use and dual purpose uh, to their long-term plans, that we need to be conscious
1: of. So, how does Russia view Chinese involvement in the Arctic?
2: I think largely it's a marriage of convenience, as we say in our uh, article. It's uh, it's really a uh, uh, investment. The Russians need Chinese investment. The Chinese want Russian hydrocarbons, uh, and they want future access to melting ice. Is opening up new sea routes across uh, the Arctic uh, in the in the not near term but very close to intermediate term future uh, that I think China wants to uh, expand into. That's what the Polar Silk Road is all about, is opening up new trade routes between Asia and Europe, and of course, uh, Russia.
1: So how should the US take advantage of that to, as you say in your article, be a wedge between China and Russia?
2: Yeah, so i think we have a real opportunity here um, obviously we wrote the article before the massacres of buka and these other horrors that are coming out uh, recently in the news uh, which i think opens up the door even further to drive a wedge here uh, china needs stability uh, they know that the russians view them with suspicion we know that the russians do not welcome chinese uh overwhelming uh, or internationalizing the arctic the russians want to be in control of their arctic and so we do have an opportunity to focus them on Responsible, transparent investment in uh, the Western Arctic states. So remember, the other seven Arctic states are all U.S. allies or partner nations. And so uh, we do need to view it with uh, a healthy dose of skepticism and make sure we're being, uh, you know, clear eyed about what Chinese purposes are. But I think there's a way to use those investments in a responsible manner that also takes away some of the power from Russia and their carbon blackmail that they're using in the, uh, in the north in their
1: Russian Arctic. You know, you had mentioned hydrocarbons before, so I wonder what the role the Arctic plays in the global energy market and the sanctions on Russia. So
2: it's going to have a massive effect uh, for Russian energy projects. These were huge projects that were actually multinational. It wasn't just all Chinese investment. There's uh, South Korean investment. Uh, there's investment from other Asian states and other uh, Western partners. Uh, these are highly uh, risky uh, you know, drilling operations, subject to a lot of climate uh, change factors that I think in the long term probably won't prove to be profitable, and so uh, there's a chance to really wean the world off of these hydrocarbons that we know are damaging to the Arctic, uh, but at the same time. Maybe encourage more responsible investment in some more friendlier hydrocarbon uh, countries that are uh, closer aligned to uh, global interests, let's say.
1: Well, speaking of the climate, you know, there is a lot of environmental and scientific research that goes on in the Arctic. Um, won't that be a setback uh, at a time when we really can't afford delays in climate action?
2: Uh, You know, truly, Mimi, I think that's the biggest loss of the Arctic Council in the short term. I I think there was some amazing work going on. We have a dedicated team of Foreign Service and Civil Service Officers at State OES Bureau, the Coast Guard, NOAA, Department of Energy, Interior, across the interagency that were working with their partners across the other seven Arctic nations on some really cutting-edge research uh, some exploratory projects that we're going to look at the way climate change was affecting the rest of the globe. And it affects every single nation on Earth, what's happening in the Arctic. And so to me, that's the greatest loss of this cooperation. So I truly hope that we do find a way to navigate this new reality uh, without accepting the illegal behavior of Putin.
1: And finally, Jeremy, I mean, what, how does this all impact the U.S.? I mean, what are you really recommending for U.S. policymakers?
2: So we don't have all the answers. This is a difficult, uh, a difficult problem. We know that, uh, but we know that China is going to continue their interest in the Arctic. They're not going away, uh, and they do have some legitimate interest in a future in the Arctic and a role in Arctic um, exploration and investment. And so we need to nourish that. Uh, so what we recommend is that policymakers in the long term, the strategy thinkers. I know this isn't number one and two on the administration's priority right now, nor should it be, uh, but we need to be thinking long term about how we can responsibly leverage Chinese investment, keep it transparent, keep it under local control, and make sure we know what it's doing to ensure China's playing by the rule book, at the meantime, weaning them away from Russia.
1: All right, well, Jeremy, thank you. I appreciate you joining us today.
2: Thank you so much, Mimi, I appreciate the honor.
1: Coming next. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a drone. How the U.S. can disable unsafe or illegal drone activity around airports and crowds. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Drones are becoming more and more common, and so are the problems associated with them. They can cause interference near airports, security concerns around crowds, and be used for illegal activity. The GAO has written a report on the issues surrounding counter-drone activities. Brian Bothwell is a director at the Government Accountability Office's Science Technology Assessment and Analytics team. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. Have drones actually caused any of the problems I just mentioned, or is this still just hypothetical?
3: Well, drones actually have caused some of the problems that you've mentioned. Um, in 2019, the New York airport had shut down operations for approximately an hour because there was a purported drone in the area. Uh, drones have also been used for smuggling drugs over the border, and they have been used to attempt to uh, smuggle contraband into prison yards.
1: And which federal agencies can legally jam drones? And under what circumstances?
3: There are limited circumstances under which the four agencies can um, counter drones. It's the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, Justice, and Homeland Security.
1: So under what circumstances would they be able to do that?
3: Um, If they're they're protecting government sites, um, also for protecting large um sporting events outside sporting events they can they can do it for that um, keeping drones away from sensitive government areas such as nuclear facilities and, and those are those are the kind of circumstances in which they can use their counter drone technologies
1: but not the transportation department I mean you would think that the FAA would need that authorization to keep drones away from airports
3: um yeah that's a good observation but they're, they're, and the FAA is doing some work in the area of counter drone re- research. Um, so it's basically restricted to those four those four agencies, but um, they also help out other agencies and they help out local law enforcement and, and state to also use these when the circumstances are warranted.
1: So who do you think should be authorized to engage in counter drone activity in the federal government, as well as um, state and local governments?
3: Well, that's a good question. That is one of the policy questions that we generated from doing this, from do, from doing this report. So policy, policymakers to consider which additional agencies or which additional um, state or local governments may, may be allowed to use this kind of activity? Where does it make sense? And then as a follow-on to that, if they do agree to expand this authority to use counter drone technologies, what what's the proper regulatory oversight? What's the proper management of that use of those counter drone technologies?
1: So kinetic solutions like shooting a net at the drone or knocking it out of the sky is not necessarily a good solution because it can hurt people on the ground. So what's the best solution in countering drones?
3: Well, it, the countering drones, there's, there's two categories of counter drone technologies. The first is detection. You have, to, you have to see it or find it before you can do something about it. So in order to detect it, there are several different ways to do it. Most uh, commonly used ones are radar or uh, radio frequency detection. So radar, you're trying to identify it you know, in the air by, by getting a pulse returned off the, off the aircraft itself. For RF detection, you're looking for those signals, maybe control signals from the drone to the operator and back. that are controlling the drone. If you find those, you can then localize the drone. But the second part, second technology that you need if you actually need to mitigate that drone and keep it away from that airspace or keep it away from whatever sensitive activity is going on, is called mitigation in general. And you mentioned one of the mitigation techniques, and that is to shoot a projectile at it, to shoot a laser at it, to launch a net at it, to try to capture it. Um, There are some unintended consequences, potentially potentially, that come out of those kind of solutions. And like the ones you mentioned, if there are people on the ground or valuable property on the ground, you could have further damage or risk to those people. And um, if you miss You know, you've you've got to realize what what else is out there, what else is in that that line of fire that you
1: could possibly hit. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What
4: we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people,